Leviticus 16, we'll have some selections from Leviticus 16. Beginning in verse 1, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word tonight. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Skip down to verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put, put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Now skip over to verse 29. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. This is God's word. It was May 21st, 2008, that a tragedy happened. Will Franklin uh, Chapman, son of Christian music artist Stephen Curtis Chapman, accidentally struck and killed his own five-year-old Chinese adopted little sister in his driveway at his own home, little Maria Sue. My family and I were on vacation when we heard about this tragedy. And I think it's safe to say that anyone in the country who had a soul cried that night for the Chapman family. Um, We cried for a lot of reasons. It was enough that someone would have to go through the pain of losing a precious daughter. But Chapman later on went on to explain that the fear was actually compounded other than just the individual loss. He quoted in an interview when he said, I just really had a deep concern in my heart that I wouldn't lose two children as a result of this because I knew what Will was struggling with. Look, it may be that you have to be a parent in order to really feel what exactly is going on with this. But at least take note of this particular struggle. 
I don't know Chapman. I don't know his son. I know that many of you do. I've spoken with many of you that are from the Nashville area, even went to school with some of the family. And I have no intention to make a spectacle of them. Please don't think that's the reason why I'm using this. But I know one thing for certain without knowing that family at all, and that's this. I know that Stephen Curtis Chapman has forgiven his son for what happened. I know that for certain because I know what it means to have children. But knowing that, I know this as well, that tantamount in Chapman's mind, in, in my guess, in every day since that terrible day, has been this one question. But how do I make my son know that he's forgiven? In other words, is there a way, a length to which I can go to communicate to him the depth of my forgiveness towards him so that he can know that the fears that he nurtures inside his own heart are unfounded in the eyes of his father? Look, y'all, it is not my intention, and I don't think it's very good for preachers to do this as much, but to be, it's not my intention to be emotionally manipulative with a story like that. But I think that you've got to grasp something of the emotional depth of what we're getting into tonight in Leviticus 16. Because God is faced, in my opinion, with a similar struggle for his people. Look, I've tried to convince you in the last couple weeks that there was actually a reason behind these food laws and behind these clean laws. In the weeks ahead, we have to dive into the holiness code that God gave to his people, Israel. And I would be deceptive if I didn't confess to you that through the, that though the gospel shows all kinds of light on these kinds of things, when you read through it, they still remain unbelievably laborious. They are meticulous in their searching. They are crushing in their detail as you read through them. The holiness code that God gave Israel, in my opinion, was, caused him to ask this question. But how do I make my people know that they're forgiven? And what he lays out for us in Leviticus 16, the whole book, y'all, sits on this fulcrum. We have come to the center, to in many ways the holiest place in the entire book of Leviticus chapter 16, because we find out what happened on the day of atonement. Because I think that it is a pervasive and persistent problem that takes some effort to, uh, to help us to understand. It's enough for me to work on trying to believe that God actually forgives me. But you know what? It is an entirely different thing and can oftentimes feel like an impossible task to actually convince myself that I'm forgiven by him. And so God looks and gives a manual for atonement, a way I would submit to you tonight that you can know, that you can know that he forgives you. And it's incredibly animated. So three things. In order to know this, you've got to know three things. You need to know a high priest. You need to confess your sins. And then you need to act like you're forgiven. You need to know a high priest. You need to confess your sins. <clears throat> And you need to act like you're forgiven. First of all, you need to know a high priest. Look, these points, as they come to us in Leviticus 16, actually have a little bit of a priority to them, if you didn't notice the first time we read through them. And they start with the most important. The very first instructions that God gives his people is what they're supposed to do about a high priest. And that's my first point. 
You cannot know that God forgives you unless you begin with a representative. That's where it all starts. The whole of Christianity is summed up in that one conviction that God desires substitutes. A substitute. Look, the high priest was was instructed to go into a little room that was in the back of their tent-like worship center that they called the tabernacle. And he was to go back there beyond a huge, very thick veil called the Holy of Holies. Once a year he would do this for the entirety of the people. It was for the whole people, one person for them all. The preparation that he had to go through for this took an entire week. And all of his preparation was full of amazing imagery. For instance, first of all, he had to change his dress. You know, usually the high priest was decked out in very ornate, very fancy kinds of dresses. But on this day, he wore a very simple linen tunic, very plainly dressed. The outfit essentially would have made him look just like a common, ordinary person just walking down the street. And it wouldn't have, it would, nothing would have been there to distinguish him from the teeming masses. Secondly, we find out that he had to wash and wash again and then wash again. There was lots and lots of cleansing ritual that was going on in order to show that the outward purity was a sign of his needful inward purity. Finally, he had tons of animal sacrifices to prepare to cover for not only his own sin, but also for the sin of the people. Look, verse 29 and 31 and 34 all go out of their way to say that when God established this point about the high priest, that it was to be a lasting ordinance. That means it's not something that was going to pass away. It was not something that would one day have to be gone. In other words, it would always have to be that way if God's people were to know that he had forgiven them. Look, Hebrews 9 makes a very explicit connection, okay, between what the ancient priests had predicted and what the coming of Jesus of Nazareth actually fulfilled. Do you remember that line in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul is talking about who this person of Jesus really was, essentially in his character? And he says that when he came, he actually set his glory aside, taking on the form of a servant. Ah, now we know what he means. You know what he was doing? He was being a high priest. He was taking off anything that would distinguish him as a majestic king that he was. Instead, he came looking like a poor person. Secondly, we find out that Jesus came with absolute, utter purity, both on the outside and on the inside. He had the inward purity that was required by these people. And then finally, instead of needing an animal for sacrifice, he turned the sacrifice on himself. He offered his own person as a sacrifice for these things to, to, to help come and split the veil that divided him from his people. It's exactly why that happened. You read some of the New Testament documents that on the night of Jesus' death, at that very moment, the temple veil split in half, granting full and free access into the Holy of Holies. Now look, y'all, I'll be honest with you, there is more (laughs) sublime information, there is more profound truth in this chapter, quite honestly, than I have time to actually get into tonight. I simply want you to hear just one thing tonight. And it's a simple point, at least what you think would be a simple point. That whatever your struggle that you may be facing tonight, of trying to understand what it means for God to really forgive... Whatever your answer to that is going to be wrapped up in this man. 
In other words, it's going to be wrapped up in a person. In other words, it's got to have something to do with Jesus. And over the years, I've learned that this is not quite obvious. For some of you, you're thinking, uh, duh, yeah. Is it really? Look, for about 15, going on 16 years now, I've had a chance to sort of listen as people talk about their religious experience. And I love to ask them about people who actually have bought into Christianity, about how they sense that they're doing, spiritually speaking. You've heard me say this before. And, and, and we talk about a thousand things. We, we talk about the youth group that we were in when we were in high school. We, we talk about our quiet times. We, we talk about our failures or, or our successes to whether or not we drink. So everybody wants to talk about whether or not we drink or not. But do you know how rare it is <laughs> to actually even hear like the name Jesus brought up anywhere in the conversation? And again, that's not to be critical of people in their understanding of Christianity. But does it not like scream to us to say that is it possible that one of the reasons why I don't feel forgiven is because I'm trying to have a relationship to God without a substitute? Look, y'all, I don't don't care what happened in youth group. I don't care how many times you read your Bible this week or month, year. Is it about Jesus? Is there something about a high priest in there that you look at and say, look, I'll be honest with you, spiritually speaking, I have my good days, I have my bad days. But I get this sense that Jesus took care of that. (laughs) And I heard that that was enough. Is there a high priest that comes and intercedes for us? You know, I've had a number of people ask me, you know, why it is that um, uh, we we don't have an opportunity for people to come up and maybe give a testimony. Uh, uh, in our UF. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not against testimonies at all. I would love to hear testimonies. But I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I felt like most of the testimonies that I heard when I went to, to certain religious gatherings ended up always being about the individual. It was, I did this before, and then I did that before, and then I did this before, and then I did that, and now I just do great. <laughs> Everything's wonderful. And suddenly, what ends up getting exalted... <laughs> Look, what is our testimony? Is our testimony not the thing that we look at and say, this is what I'm locking my life in on? And I found out there was this guy 2,000 years ago who was the ultimate high priest. And somebody told him about it and announced him to me. And all of a sudden, I found myself responding to it. My friends, is there a high priest? You first of all need a high priest. Secondly, though, the second thing you need to do in order to sense forgiveness is to confess your sins. Now, look, this is a very weird ritual because God tells the high priest to go get two goats. Two goats, right? The first one he slaughtered and sacrificed on the altar. And the sacrifice is, of course, for the sins of the people. But it's very interesting that in verse 16 and 18 say something very strange. That the offering is also supposed to go to make, here's the quote, atonement for the holy place. And in verse 18, atonement for the altar. Now, does anybody recognize how weird that is? Uh, Why would you need to have a sacrifice for an inanimate object? Right? No sacrifice. Is there shedding of blood for inanimate objects now, for pieces of furniture? What's the meaning of that? Why? I think the answer is powerful. The reason why is because a sinner touched it. Those artifacts are unholy because it came in contact with you. 
Look, y'all, I recognize that this is, um, this is very uncool to say for two different groups. <laughs> Half of the group I think that's here tonight are sort of looking on the outside of Christianity, saying to themselves, you got to be kidding me. Really? Really? Okay, I make an inanimate object sinful. That's what you're going to suggest to me. This is that depressing kind of religion that you set forward. But to be honest with you, I found the other half of the room to be just as appalled by those kinds of statements. The other half of the room is looking kind of going, oh, well, I mean, you know, that's before we became a Christian, right? I mean, now I'm great. Now I'm wonderful, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. Everlasting ordinance. Hey, look, y'all. A Christianity that is devoid of humility brings no peace to the soul who embraces it. Let me run that past you again. You might have missed that one. A Christianity that is devoid of admitting to radical sin, of saying that even my very presence in the midst of inanimate objects would actually taint them, means that you'll have no peace. And I know you're thinking to yourself, why hold that thought? Because there was a second goat. You see, the second goat had something very interesting done with it. Because this one was called the scapegoat. Actually, literally translated, it was the escape goat. In other words, it was the one, the goat that leaves and never comes back, right? But what struck me about this particular goat is, is what was done over it before something was done to it. Look at verse 21. In verse 21, it says, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. Huh. What must that have been like? <laughs> have you ever thought about that? To have all of your community's dirty laundry aired out in public? Hmm. I wonder what that would be like. You know, I, <laughs> And actually, as I began to wonder what this would be like, it sort of occurred to me to think about something. I was helped by um, uh, uh, Kevin DeYoung, one of the guys I heard preach on the same passage. You know, Christian types, like the kinds of people that would come to RUF on a Wednesday night, I think sometimes spend a lot of time on a campus like this one trying to figure out, you know, how do we be a witness to this campus? How do we witness to this campus? You know, when we, we work real hard to read books so we can get answers to the philosophical questions that might get posed to us by our unbelieving professors. We, you know, we fret for hours over whether or not we should be seen with a certain group of people, you know, or, or whether or not it really is okay for me to have a drink when I go to that party. Always about the drinking, right? You know, though, I wonder what would happen. I wonder what would happen if the Christians, instead of spending all that time on that, would once a year gather into a place all together at one time and say something like this. Oh Lord, we have sinned against you and we have not done what was right. Lord, we are cheaters. We are gossips. We are abusers. We are adulterers. We are fornicators. We are addicts. We have betrayed our friends in the name of social advancement. We have worked more desperately to go out to be seen on the weekends than to honor your glory. We have been lazy in prayer and yet hardworking in figuring out ways to sin. We've spent more time in front of our televisions than we ever would dream of being in front of your word. 
We have disrespected our parents and defied their authority in the name of pursuing our own independence. We have tossed and turned awake at night, not because we have hard hearts that won't acknowledge you, but because we wonder if she still likes us. We have been proud and arrogant with our knowledge and condescending to anyone who doesn't believe like we do. We have yelled at our children and disciplined them because they annoy us and not because we love them. In case you think I'm not including myself in this list. We have spoken unfair and uncharitable things about the people that are sitting next to us right now. We have been quick to criticize. We have nursed and excused addictions to pornography and illicit material of every kind. Lord, we have pressured our women into a sexual mold that's more like a porn star and not like a woman. We have been drunk enough times this month to be clinically called alcoholics. We have been dressed as provocatively as we possibly can, calling it innocent flirting, dressing because we know that it drives the boys crazy. If the world could see our thoughts, every one of us would be openly put to shame. We have twisted the hard parts of Scripture and ignored the obvious parts. We have loved ourselves with an undying love. We have questioned God's providence towards us, been angry with his providence towards us, and doubted his provision. We are not the men that we so desperately want for them to think that we are, and we are not the women that we so long to have someone notice that we are. Our iniquities have gone above our heads, and they are a burden too heavy to bear. Or something like that. Look, y'all, I'm tempted to say to all of us here that we don't need to make any more pronouncements on this campus to the watching non-Christian world until we've communicated to them that we actually believe the kind of stuff that I just said. Okay? <laughs> Look, y'all, we have not sensed his forgiveness maybe because we don't think that we need to be forgiven. And for many of us, it kind of needs to come out and to stop living underneath this assumption that good Christians don't struggle with things. Stop it. <laughs> yeah, you do. And it's worse because you know the truth. Look, y'all, it all begins with humility to stand up in some way and to tell the world, I'm getting off it now. <laughs> I'm going to stop trying to make you think that something is true about me that's not. Look, y'all, for many of us, it's not going to happen until it's verbalized. Is there someone to whom you can vocalize your embarrassment? Hmm. Look, y'all, in order to sense God's forgiveness, you need to have a high priest. It's got to be about Jesus. But secondly, there's got to be a sense in which our, our humility comes out. But thirdly and finally, God instructs his people then to act like they're forgiven. Look, I want to suggest to you that the mere admission of the kinds of things that I just listed for us sort of magically opens a door for you spiritually. 
It opens a door. Look in verse 24. Aaron is told to go after all of this ritual is done and to put back on the royal robes. Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon is a, a, a Baptist preacher from the late 1800s, a prince of preachers, and you just need to read Spurgeon. When he does a sermon on this particular passage, he talks about the imagery of the new clothes that Aaron puts on. And he says that imagery is a description of the forgiven person. In other words, they begin to take on the outward appearance of royalty. And that's a beautiful image, Spurgeon says. He says, because there is a dramatic change of countenance that comes to a beggar that turns him instantly into a rich man. Now look, let me ask you a question. What would possibly be the best news you could give to a poor person? This is not a trick question. (laughs) I think it's an easy question. That he's rich. (laughs) The best way to change the countenance of a poor person is to let him know he's rich. He won the lottery. And so God is looking at his redeemed people in verses 29 through 31 and saying, Look, I want you to go out and live like a forgiven person. Why? Because you are. Now, what does that look like? Two things. First thing is this. It looks, first of all, like afflicting yourself. (laughs) Do you read that the first time through and think to yourself, what? I'm supposed to go afflict myself. And, you know, okay, this is great. I've got a cat of nine tails here. I guess I'm supposed to whip my back or something. I mean, what if I hit myself in the head? What does that look like? No, no, no. This is not talking about physical harm. You know what it's talking about? It's talking about a brand new posture a way of seeing you and the world around you that stops trying to act like you've got it all together. And I know for in some ways that looks like a death to a lot of you, but you know what? For some of you are going to discover that it is life and health and peace. You want to know why? Because it gets rid of your defensiveness. You do realize that one of the things that's blocking you from having real relationships with the people that you know is the fact of your defensiveness. Sometimes it's very hard to talk to you because... It's difficult for you to admit the things about you that everybody else sees except you. Look, to afflict ourselves is to look and say, you know what? It's all true. And so I've got to put on a posture, a way of seeing that's different. Let me give an example. Back to Spurgeon. Good guy, that Spurgeon. And I love to use this illustration. I think I do it once a year. Spurgeon, prince of preachers, was standing outside of his church on a particular Sunday morning. And all the people were sort of filing out of the doors after the church service was over. An elderly woman approached uh, Spurgeon and said, Mr. Spurgeon, I just want you to know that I think that you are the most obnoxious, conceited, arrogant man that I've ever met. And I wanted to be the one to tell you. And off she stormed. Okay, well, all eyes on Spurgeon. What in the world is he going to say? He leans over to one of his deacons right next to him and sort of nudges him and says, she doesn't know the half of it. Now, why does that story make you smile? I suggest that it makes you smile because you want to hang out with a guy like Spurgeon who doesn't have a chip on their shoulder, who looks and says, you know what? If someone actually has something to critique in me, I might need to hear that. They might know something that I can't see. That's the first way to look like a rich person is because you suddenly realize that I've got these riches. I don't have to act like I've got it all together because I'm not worried about having it all together. And that brings us to the second thing. Because Jesus, because God says, not only do I want you to afflict yourselves, but then I want you to take the whole day off. <laughs> I love this. You got to love this about this God. 
He looks and says, in order to celebrate this, I want you to take a day off. The Bible calls it the Sabbath. It's the word that means rest. I love this thought. God looks at his people and says, I want you to just stop working. And unfortunately for a lot of people, they just kind of get all bent out of shape whenever they hear they're like, oh, here comes that legalism. Those people who don't do anything on Sundays, like those weird people who are like religious like that. Look, Jesus looks and says, I want you to take a Sabbath rest. Not because of some performance of a, a, a ritualistic performance that makes you better than other people. No, no, no. I want you to rest because you can. I want you to rest because you can suddenly look at the world around you and say, wait a minute, I I really won the lottery? I I actually don't need those people. I, I actually don't have to have that career. Wait a minute. If you want to break up with me, I guess I'll be okay after that. A little too close to home on that last one. But here's the funny thing. Jesus says, if you seek him first and his righteousness, all these other things get added to you. In other words, I don't think I can be a good friend to my people group until I don't need them. And my career is going to destroy me as long as I have to have it to be my identity. And is it not possible that one of the problems with our dating relationships and the thing that's going to drive a wedge between us and our future spouses is the fact that we need them. And we crush them with our neediness. Look what God is saying. He's saying it's time to act like a forgiven person. And that means to change your posture and rest. Look, y'all. Stephen Curtis Chapman said that he didn't remember what he said to his son as he drove out of the, out of the driveway with his, with his little girl taking her to the hospital. But his brother did. And in the interview, his brother looked and said, I remember what my dad said. He said he leaned out of the window of his car and screamed, Will Franklin, your father loves you. Look, y'all, my guess is that there's nothing more that he could have said that could heal his son more than that. Because we're looking and saying, Les, I don't sense those riches. Well, guess what? Here's the announcement. I got the greatest job in the world. You want to know why? Because I get to be the one that tells you this. Les Newsom, your father loves you. I think that everything that, that, that is wrong with me spiritually and wrong with us as an RUF community spiritually is because that voice is distant. It's clouded by bad fathers like me. It's clouded by a lot of failures and disappointments that if we piled up in this room, we'd probably go to the ceiling. But it doesn't keep it from being true. And you can consider that an invitation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do ask that you would be gracious to us. Because there's lots of things that we drag into this room. There's all kinds of mountains of hurt. We feel like there's mountains of second chances that you've, all, that you've always given us. And for many of us, we would oftentimes despair that you would even be willing to put up with us one more time. 
But Lord Jesus, would you give us the grace to be able to hear your voice to say that indeed, that because of the blood of the Lamb, because of our great high priest, because you granted us the ability to stop putting on airs, that we can walk around like we're forgiven people and stop being so defensive and to learn to rest, to learn to take a break from the franticness that is plaguing us. But it's not going to happen if we don't hear your voice say that tonight. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray for all of these people in the room, my friends, and I pray for me that we would hear in a fresh way, some way, that our Father loves us in Christ. And if that's true, it changes everything. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.